Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about what we are watching, reading, and listening to. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm the editor of NPR's pop culture and entertainment blog, Monkey See. This week, it's math and history and hidden figures. Then we visit the brand new Netflix version of the family comedy, One Day at a Time. As always, we'll close the show with what's making us happy this week, so stick around. This is Tom Hanks. Do you know an undiscovered musician who deserves a break? Well, we have an idea for them. NPR Music is holding a tiny desk contest to find one great unsigned musician to play the iconic Tiny Desk concert series and tour the United States with NPR Music. All you have to do is shoot a video of your musical act playing an original song behind a desk and submit it by January 29th. Learn more at npr.org slash contest. Before we get started here in Historic Studio 44, let's go around the table. Stephen Thompson, what do you do at NPR? I am a writer and editor with NPR Music. And Glenn Weldon, what do you do at NPR? I write about books, comics, and other stuff at the NPR website. And with us this week in our fourth chair from New York, Miss Brittany Loose. Brittany, what do you do? I am the host of an upcoming podcast at Gimlet Media, and I am also the co-host with Eric Eddings of an independent podcast called For Colored Nerds. Yeah, you sure are good show and i'm sure the upcoming one will be a good show too is it still a secret it's still a secret some parts of it are secret to me the development process is like looking into a crystal ball while like also using a jackhammer you just you're like plowing ahead and you have no clue what's gonna happen but it's been really really fun so far and i think we're working on something that people are gonna be excited about that's fantastic i think that development process Brittany, is the same the world over At any rate, first up this week is Hidden Figures, which had a nice, healthy box office expansion this weekend after opening just before Christmas so it could be in the running for awards season. Based on real stories and a book by Margot Lee Shetterly, the film tells the story of three black women who worked in the space program in the 1950s and 60s. They're played by Taraji P. Henson, Octavia Spencer, and Janelle Monet. It's directed by Theodore Melfi, who co-wrote the screenplay with Alison Schroeder, and it also stars Kevin Costner, Kirsten Dunst, Jim Parsons, and Mahershala Ali, who, like Janelle Monet, was in both this and Moonlight this uh-huh. year. Yeah. Brittany, did you see Hidden Figures just this weekend? Yeah, on Friday night. Yeah, what'd you think? I loved it. Yeah, me too. I loved it. What about this worked for you? It was the first movie that I'd ever seen about black women working in science. Yeah. <laughs> Which, like, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a forensic scientist. And, I, I, and, like, my family didn't really know why. And I think at the time I didn't really know why. But when I think back on it, the only black person, woman, pictured in like my fifth grade science textbook was a forensic scientist. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, I want to be a forensic scientist. So it was just amazing to see like this story that I should have learned about in school and I totally didn't. And then also like I am a sucker for Taraji B. Henson and Octavia Spencer and Mahershala Ali. The acting was beautiful. And also, like, a lot of times I think when I see stories, if it's not about the civil rights movement or if it's not about slavery, then, like, it's not a serious story that deserves, like, respect in its telling. Yeah. I live in Brooklyn, so I saw it at the Court Street Theater. And if you if you live in New York or you live in Brooklyn, then you know what it's like there. Pretty much, like, any movie starring black people does well at the Court Street Theater. Yeah. Especially on an opening weekend. And it was, like, this really communal experience where I went with like my two roommates, one of whom is a black woman who works in tech, the other 
uh, went to Yale, you know, to pursue a PhD in genetics. And so, like, these are two black women who are very familiar with the STEM field. And then we were in a theater full of a bunch, you know, a lot of other black women of different ages who were like, you know, anytime anybody was kissing, they were cheering. And there were so many different points where people were laughing out loud, talking to the screen, clapping openly, like when the credits weren't rolling. It was an amazing experience, but also I just thought the film was just beautiful and well done and made me feel really good about my life. There is a sense of humor in this movie. There's a sense of kind of joy in it. It's not it's not just a kind of march through a series of historical facts. Those women are all really fun. Mm-hmm. And Kevin Costner is kind of settling into this like old curmudgeonly dude <laughs> thing that I think when it's deployed correctly, I'm still capable of enjoying. Uh, Glenn, what did you think? You know, a while back we talked about Bridge of Spies. We called it old-fashioned movie making. And we stressed that that's not a dig. It's just the kind of movie they used to make. And the difference is that Bridge of Spies is the kind of movie they could have made 40 years ago. And yeah. this, probably, this story probably wouldn't have been told. Yeah. Uh, this kind of story uh, wasn't out there. So, I mean, there's a bit of Hollywood hand-waving throughout this thing, yes. right? There are scenes where things that are explained to us that don't need to be explained, mm-hmm. things are pointed at that don't need to be pointed at. Mm-hmm. But you know what it did? It made me pick up the book. So that's yeah. a good thing, right? Because yeah. I want the facts. I don't want a lot of this yeah. very stagey staff meetings where things are explained that don't need to be explained. So I picked up the book. And so I, I'll get it without the distractions. The other thing that uh, struck me is that Janelle Monet is a star. Your Honor, you of all people should understand the importance of being first. How's that, Mrs. Jackson? Well, you were the first in your family to serve in the armed forces, U.S. Navy, the first to attend university. What's the point? I plan on being an engineer at NASA, but I can't do that without taking them classes at that all-white high school. And I can't change the color of my skin. So I have no choice but to be the first, which I can't do without you, sir. Your Honor, out of all the cases you're going to hear today, which one is going to matter 100 years from now? Which one is going to make you the first? Yeah, she yeah. is luminous in this film. She's great. Uh, they're all great. But uh, I don't know. There's something about her presence on screen that really struck me. I picked up the book, too, and I'm not all the way through it yet. But one of the things I thought was interesting was that you can kind of tell that specifically what the author of the book is trying to do is explain that this is a bigger story that involved a lot of women, a lot of black women, some white women. It's part of her entire point is to say right. that what what surprised her was finding out how many of these women there were. Mm. And she actually talks at one point about how the legend of Katherine Johnson, who's the Taraji P. Henson character, for people who do know that story, it's actually become more than it was in a way. Mm-hmm. She gets singled out as a kind of like that she was the only person woman who did this or Mm -hmm. the only one. And it seems like part of the point of the book is that what you had was a group of women who were all part of this organization. And I think it's critical. And that's true in the movie, too. But I think it's critical that that's one of the things that allows them to be successful is that there are a lot of them who support, were able to support each other and kind of back each other up a little bit. What do you think, Thompson? Yeah, that's a really interesting point you make about giving that particular character the Alan Turing treatment. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, the imitation game, which tended to put a lot of focus on one person, kind of at the expense of history. And that's one, mm-hmm. of, the, one of the reasons I'm, I'm really curious when you guys are talking about the book. I watched this movie the way I watch a lot of biopics, wondering where corners are being cut, where there's hand-waving, where you're seeing one person 
given credit for something that actually 30 people did. Yeah. Otherwise, while I found it, uh, uh, luminous is a, is a nice word for it. It's wonderfully acted. They just put in this movie like terrific actor after terrific actor after terrific actor to the point where it almost can't go wrong. But at the same time, I also felt it was very on rails. Mm. It m- followed very familiar beats of biopics in a way that to me kept it from fully transcending you know what it was trying to do it was it was kind of in terms of degree of difficulty it wasn't necessarily going for any great innovation i thought it was very very good at what it was which was a biopic yeah i mean this thing is engineered for uplift right you cut, walk yeah. out of that theater feeling good about some things that maybe it's, I don't know, is it a swaging white guilt? Is there an element of that to this film where we see some people who did a good thing back in a time when very few people were doing good things and so we can kind of comfort ourselves with, ah, oh, it wasn't so bad. I mean, is, yeah, the, is there an element to the, that? No, I don't think that's mm. the point. What do you think, Brittany? I mean, there were some moments where like, I mean, when I saw Kevin Costner <laughs> get up on like, I don't know, a chair or a step stool or something like that and like use a sledgehammer to knock down like the colors only bathroom sign yeah. that I was kind of like, OK. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I was impressed with how many maybe maybe impressed isn't the right word. I, I think I might have been more relieved. Um, there were still moments where Dorothy Vaughn, uh, Octavia Spencer's character, was able to get digs into her conversations with yeah. Kirsten Dunst's character. Uh, specifically, there was a scene in the bathroom where they go back and forth. And Octavia Spencer's character, Mrs. Vaughn, she just doesn't let Kirsten Dunst's character off the hook. Mm -hmm. And I really, really appreciated that moment. Yeah, there were some moments in the film where I was kind of like, oh, okay, Kevin Costner's character is just like the ultimate, like, white good guy. Granted, I haven't lived the white American experience, but I didn't think that that was an ingredient as to why the movie made would make a person feel good. It's interesting that you say that about about Kevin Costner being... America's white good guy. I mean, he gets a little bit more of an arc. Unlike John Glenn, who is portrayed <laughs> basically like they almost went in and through CGI added a halo. Right. <laughs> you know, that was true of uh, a movie this reminded me of, uh, The Right Stuff. In that film and in the book, John Glenn is just a superhero, basically. I, I gather there was, at least in, in the Langley and that, in that sort of uh, community, yeah. uh, that, was the, that was the take on him. Yeah, and the book is less focused on just the John Glenn mission part. The book mm-hmm. is a longer story about these women through the 40s and 50s in particular, um, and then into the 60s, but especially kind of their adjusting to their arrival at what wasn't even NASA yet in the 40s and 50s. I would push back a little bit against the kind of the formulaic biopic take on this movie for a couple of reasons, one of which is I don't really see this as a biopic. To me, a biopic is something like uh, I Saw the Light, where Tom Hiddleston played Hank Williams. Williams. Mm -hmm. You get the kind of known points throughout the person's life. You know, you get the marriage, you get the so-and-so, you get the thing, you know the person's getting old, and then cough, cough, and you know they're about to die. (laughs) That is what that movie is. This was more just a a historical drama, like Apollo 13 or something Mm. like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would put it under biopic. The Mm, central character, Katherine Johnson, for example, other than a very, very brief prologue that explains that she was a very, very smart child, you don't really get, you know, you don't get her schooling. You don't really get her college. She she talks about it later a little bit. But you really get these three women 
in this one place and time. So for me, it doesn't have the biopic weakness of sort of going through the beats of here's where the person gets married. Here's where the person has a baby. Here's where the person has another baby. You just find this woman who at the beginning of this story is a widow, but you don't really find out anything about how her husband died mm. or you know how her kids were born or whatever. She just has these kids and she's in this place and she has this job. I like it in part because, to me, it's a story about a workplace and not necessarily structured around the arc of the woman's life. Also, to see the support that they got from their partners, their children, their parents um, in their endeavors, I thought that that was really important. I, I was talking to my father on the phone earlier today, and he's retired now, so he does a lot of mentoring with young boys who are like high school age. And I was like, you need to take them to go see Hidden Figures because there is some very good relationship modeling yeah. in this film. Yeah, I, I just... I loved that stuff. And I, I particularly, one of my biggest frustrations in the way creative enterprises of any kind are, are treated is they tend to be treated as the work of one great genius. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this in, in, in other things. I, mean, I mentioned the invitation game up front. I really liked the instances in this movie of like where you see an actual room full of people and see the process of how right. their jobs are saved and right. how they are yeah. lifted up and trained. And to see that this is not, like we said, just the work of like she came in and saved NASA. Yeah. Yeah. All right. If you have seen Hidden Figures, if you go see Hidden Figures, come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet at us at PCHH and tell us what you think. When we come back, we are going to move from the movie theater to the television screen. We're going to talk about Netflix's one day at a time. So come right back. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Zola, an online wedding registry that makes it easy for modern couples to curate a personalized wish list. Couples can choose products from over 450 brands, register for unique life experiences, or even cash all in one place. New products can be added from any store at any time. Zola also allows couples to withdraw cash fund gifts and to control when gifts are shipped. Create your registry today and get a $50 credit at Zola.com slash happy hour. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. There have been a number of remakes and reboots and revisitings of old television shows recently, from full-on remakes like MacGyver to long-held sequels like Fuller House and The X-Files. But in early January, Netflix dropped all 13 episodes of One Day at a Time, a reinvented version of the popular CBS sitcom that ran from 1975 to 1984. Like the original, this one stars a mom and her two kids, but here the family is Cuban-American. The mom is played by Justina Machado, the daughter and son by Isabella Gomez and Marcel Ruiz, and the grandmother by the great and good Rita Moreno. As was the case with the original, one of the producers is TV super genius Norman Lear, who you may know from such shows as All in the Family and uh, and the like. But day to day, it's being run by Gloria Calderon Kellett, who's an experienced writer of shows like How I Met Your Mother and who's Cuban-American herself, as well as Mike Royce, who's worked on some very lovely shows, uh, including Enlisted and Men of a certain age and kind of has that gene for warm TV. I have to say, this is one of those shows that was not much on my radar oh. until my critic friends started to ask me if I had seen it sort of <laughs> eagerly. 
Glenn, I was very curious about what you were going to think of this show and what your husband was going to think of this show, in uh-huh. part because your husband is Cuban-American, yes, he is. as are your in-laws uh-huh. and uh, much of your family. Uh-huh. Talk to me a little bit uh, about your reaction. Well, uh, uh, let's posit that five things, these five things are equally true. A, best opening credits on TV. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, like, un- Fast forwardable. You are binging this thing. Yeah, we, we got to listen to a little bit of oh, the, the updated <laughs> the updated song. Hit it, Jess. This is it. This is life. The one you get. Trouble and have a ball. This is it. Straight ahead and rest assured. You can't be sure at all. So while you're here, enjoy the view. Keep on doing what you do. Hold on tight. We'll muddle through one day at a time. It's just joyous. It's just joyous. Uh, you lose the bop, bop, ba in the original opening theme uh, yeah. to One Day at a Time back in the 70s. Had a little bop, bop, bop. But you replace it with arriba. So, <laughs> so I mean, it's a toss-up. Uh, so the A, best uh, opening credits in TV. B, this show does exactly what it sets out to do. It draws a target and it fires and it hits that target exactly. <laughs> C, this cast is charming. Uh, yeah. D, Rita Moreno is a gift from the universe. Mm-hmm. Her mere mm-hmm. presence on this plane of existence uh, argues pretty conclusively for a just and loving God. Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. And E, this show is not remotely for me. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> all those things can be true. All of those things can be equally true. It took me three episodes to get past this reaction as I was watching. Really? We're doing this? This This is what we're doing? This? Really? Seriously? Because... The bones of this show, the multi-camera sitcom, set up punchline, set up punchline, important mm-hmm. speech, set up punchline, set up punchline, important speech. The bones are just fossilized. It just feels like such a throwback. And I saw all 13 episodes. Uh, would I, were I uh, by myself and not sitting on a couch with a Cuban-American who kept reaching for the remote at the end of every episode and said, one more, one more, one more, would I have, would I have done that? <laughs> no. But I mean, here's how important representation is. Every low-hanging joke that began, well, we're Cubans, we... XYZ. Huge peals of laughter from Faust. Huge. And at one point he turned to me, tears in his eyes, and said the following, it's true, he said. <laughs> and I was like, are you a stereo? Who, who are you? Um, uh, what he said is it reminded him a lot, not so much of the old one day at a time, but of a show called Que Pasa USA, which was a bilingual show that uh, was on PBS, actually, from 1977 to 1980, which was set in Miami, and it was about Cubans. And, th- and, and it's, it's great for what it does, but what it does just mystifies me. Okay. Mm, How about you, Stephen? <laughs> I'm a much milder version of that. And for me, I was able to pretty quickly uh, come to terms with the fact that this was largely working with ingredients, sitcom structure wise, that we've seen before. Mm-hmm. That, you know, you kind of have the wacky neighbor and you have the, the elderly grandmother who says what's on her mind. And you have a lot of these familiar beats. For me, the hardest thing to get past by far was the studio audience. Mm. And that is as much about my own, those muscles have atrophied over mm-hmm. over the years. I just don't watch a lot of TV comedies where there is audience laughter or a laugh track or, or any kind of what feels like canned laughter being delivered to you. For me, it took probably took three episodes for me to fully forget that it was happening. But that's as much an audience retraining thing as it is a specific issue with this show. I did find myself after those few episodes just really feeling the warmth of this show. Mm-hmm. I think Justina Machado is a wonderful 
lead so charming, so agreeable, so relatable, and everything that revolves around her, I just came to, to, to really love. And I mean, Rita Moreno, as we've all said, is a worldwide treasure. It is a very broad performance. It is. <laughs> she, she is introduced to the world in a curtains being thrown open. You are watching a gif on screen. Mm-hmm. It just worked its little tendrils into me. Don't expect anything groundbreaking in terms of in terms of sitcoms, just embrace the warmth of this lovely little show. All right. What do you think, Brittany? I had uh, similar thoughts as far as like the first three episodes. I struggled, but I really, really, really got into it after a while. The, the cast is so charming. I adore Rita Moreno. Even if you don't watch this show, there's a really good interview um, with her. I think it's a two-parter on Tavis Smiley because I used to watch a lot of that. She's like just a delight when you see her sing, dance, act, speak. Everything she does, I adore it. I know that her performance is, I think broad is definitely the word. (laughs) But every time she's on screen, I can't help but be drawn to her. And Justina Machado is so charming. She's so gorgeous. I had to... um, I had to cover my boyfriend's eyes like half of the time because he was just like, who is the, who is the mother? Who's playing the mom? And he's like sitting there Googling her and he's like, oh, she was on Six Feet Under. Interesting. Um, she's gorgeous. She's got great timing. I mean, I don't really even like this phrase, but she does have a megawatt smile. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I instantly found myself wishing that I had seen more of her. I think the thing about the show that kind of gets me is that, I don't know, my parents watch Two and a Half Men, Big Bane Theory, Two Broke Girls, Mm -hmm. you know, a few of those, uh, How I Met Your Mother, like very popular, like CBS, three camera studio audience style sitcoms. This is definitely within that mold. The thing that sort of concerns me is I think that actually this show could be, you know, competitive with that type of programming, but it's kind of in the wrong slot in that Mm. it's not in a slot, like it's on Netflix. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest reasons why the CBS shows that I just named are so popular is because of their viewership. It's like a dedicated audience of people who probably comprised a lot of Norman Lear's maybe younger audience back when he was like in Mm -hmm. his prime. And these are people who have sort of, who are used to that type of sitcom experience I guess I'm sort of like, I mean, I'm, I'm happy that it exists, and I definitely was charmed by the family. And after about the third episode, I found myself wanting to watch the next one. But I wish that a show like that would just be on network TV. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think the advantage is they are, you know, shows on Netflix are judged by a whole separate <laughs> metric. Yeah. And I think in some ways that can be a good thing for something like this that is intended to be legitimately creative and made with a great deal of love, as opposed to something that has to compete with broadcast shows where on a broadcast show you are expected to hit a certain mark in terms of viewership that I think can challenge the ability of really good writers to make the thing the way that they really want to make it. The other advantage, I think, to Netflix is a broadcast sitcom. I think they're running right now around 2145. And these are full half hours. And I think that with a show like this, where particularly as you go through the season, the charm of this show comes in the actual story and character and the work that they're doing to create, you know, it is a true situation comedy and then a character comedy. So I think those eight minutes of content Mm. per episode, more than a third again as Mm -hmm. much content, 
you know, are important to making the show work because I will say I I loved it. And I had initially the first I did have some of that like that same building, but that muscle back up mm-hmm. because it is a studio audience show and you do hear people laughing. But so was <laughs> Cheers and sure. so was MASH and so was All in the Family. And But you like uh, How I Met Your Mother. You like mm-hmm. uh, you like Big Bang Theory, right? I, so I do. They, I do. It, it, it probably didn't seem as. Uh, off-putting I think, to you. I think that's right. But at the same time, like I think when I see a multicam now, I have a different set of expectations. Mm. I felt like as this went on, I think Justina Machado in this show is, I like this performance as much as anything anybody's doing in mm-hmm. comedy. Mm-hmm. I think the farther you get into the show, the more you appreciate where she's going and how much is going on in this show. Because mm-hmm. it's not just the fact that the family is Cuban-American. That is true. And I'm delighted to hear that Faust thought it was satisfying because <laughs> I thought it was a, a lovely and, and loving and very specific yep portrayal. It's also the fact that, for example, she is, uh, the mom is a veteran. And there is an episode that involves her dealing with the VA. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that episode has a real liveliness and and a a really interesting combination of it is very traditional. It's about the frustrations of dealing with bureaucracy. And you can imagine Mm -hmm. a sitcom episode, you know, decades old, that's kind of about dealing with bureaucracy and dealing with people on the, you know, there's an old, on one of the comedy records I listened to when I was a little child, was a Shelley Berman routine about calling (laughs) a department store because there was a lady hanging out the window (laughs) and trying to get some to go help her in the store you can it's an old bit and yet having it be the va Uh is this entirely other thing that Mm. really you do not see in a lot of sitcoms that is something that does not and this is true too it's interesting um mike royce who as i said is one of the producers of this and worked on enlisted Mm -hmm. those are both two of the very few shows that have really tried to integrate military families Mm -hmm. into comedies into kind of half-hour sitcoms in recent years. And so I thought that was really welcome. I think this show, and, and maybe it is the difference between 21 minutes and 31 minutes, but this show has, I think, does a very nice job of fitting in kind of more issue-oriented mm-hmm. plots without feeling like, as Glenn was sort of saying, every, you stop and give a speech. Like, there's a tiny bit of that, but mm-hmm. you there's an episode that works in, a, you know, as a very matter of fact issues around immigration mm-hmm. that there's that VA episode she's a, a vet who's clearly dealing with some some psychological mm-hmm. aftermath mm-hmm. and some physical aftermath and that comes into play in a way that's not tossed off mm-hmm. but it's not a situation where they stop the show right. to lecture about it I think they they weave it in very nicely yeah. and you know um, I think when we say the performances are broader the delivery is broader whatever I think people can misconstrue that as us saying or at least me saying it's loose. There's nothing loose about this. No. This is mm-hmm. a very highly specific format, and it's the format that is make or break for me. It's like you know, Commedia dell'arte, right? It's like <laughs> like you might you might like everything, yep. all the actors, all the writing, but the Commedia dell'arte format maybe just doesn't work for you. It's so specific. It's so yeah. cheated out. You know, everybody's kind of pitched to the back rows of the right. studio audience. Everybody's <laughs> sort of and arguments that happen happen very performatively in this very rhythmic way. It's specific and they're doing it 
and again. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> not... <laughs> so let me let me try to draw a line between our A topic and our B topic this week, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. I think when we talked about Hidden Figures, when we talked about it as a kind of a, as a biopic, right? And we talk about this as a sitcom. I think almost every word that we have that describes a popular format mm-hmm. winds up being a word that is at least at some level, if not openly, dismissive, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That has an undertone of dismissiveness or at least suspicion, right? <laughs> uh, sitcom, rom-com, biopic, tearjerker, melodrama, all of those things that kind of have been highly successful and in a lot of ways have been popular and have made a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. And have and have been made formulas. Yeah. Well, and this is but this is my point is that I think what happens is once something becomes successful in a lot of ways, people begin making lazy versions of it. Absolutely. And as lazy versions of it proliferate, and I think you can say this about both biopics and sitcoms, particularly studio audience sitcoms, although I think there are more and more lazy single cameras as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As lazy versions proliferate, people come to associate the laziness with the format rather Mm -hmm. than with the execution. Mm -hmm. So I think when you look at the fact that Cheers was a multi-camera sitcom too, but to me, there was never anything lazy or formulaic about it in the sense that the writing was always very, you know, lively and and interesting. I would say the same about about All in the Family. I would say the same thing about a lot of those shows. So to me, this is a this is a non-lazy execution. If you watch One Day at a Time, come and tell us what you think of it. It is on Netflix right now, 13 episodes. I am a big, big fan of this show. So come and find us at Facebook.com slash PCHH. Tweet us at PCHH. Tell us what you think. When we come back, it's going to be time for our favorite segment of this week and every week, what is making us happy this week. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed to eliminate food waste, along with step-by-step recipes for delicious meals designed to take 30 minutes to make. And everything is delivered in a special insulated box for free. Pop Culture Happy Hour listeners can receive $35 off their first week of deliveries. Just visit HelloFresh.com and enter promo code HAPPYHOUR35 on your first purchase. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week. Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week, buddy? Well, earlier in this episode, we have talked about reductive descriptors that are used to dismiss uh, things we think we might not like. Sitcoms, rom-coms, biopics. For me, one of those is a Western. And I often have to sort of drag myself to the theater or to the DVD or whatever to see whatever the new Western Oscar contender is. And I'm so glad I did because the movie I just saw is Hell or High Water. It's so good. Which is so good. So good. It stars uh, Chris Pine and Ben Foster, speaking of Six Feet Under, as uh, two brothers who are robbing banks for uh, reasons that become clear over the course (laughs) of of the movie. And basically, it, it is a Western, but it is also very, very, very modern, Mm -hmm. up to and including the motivations of the characters involved, and up to and including the use of concealed carry as a way to trigger, so to speak, gunfights. it's got Jeff Bridges and uh, and Gil Birmingham as the the cops who are who are kind of on the tail of these guys. In a way, it's like a very sympathetic portrayal of 
all of these different people. It, it, it bothers to give people multi-dimensional motivations for doing things that do a nice job of muddying up the waters of who you're rooting for and why. I thought this movie was just dynamite. I loved it. Hell or high water. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Glenn Weldon. 20th Century Women is a film that stars Annette Bening, Elle Fanning, Greta Gerwig. Uh, Annette Bening has a sort of a boarding house, and Elle Fanning and Greta Gerwig are people who live there. Uh, and uh, Annette Bening also has a son. And uh, the three of these women basically communally raise the sun. And uh, you go into it, and if that's the tagline that you hear, and you think, okay, it's set in the 70s, so it's going to be, Annette Benning's going to be kind of a hippie, and it's going to be all... No. She is amazing in this film, and she has little to do that's big or chewy. It's all in her reaction. She is the rock at the center of this movie. She is the voice of common sense, while uh, people kind of spin around her. Performances of this film are, are really good, and it doesn't. It's shaggy and it doesn't really fit you know your rising action falling action it's just this snapshot of this time of this place uh, southern california and it's just such a satisfying movie and annette benning this is going to sound churlish but annette benning is doing something that is so quiet and still and sensible at the center of this movie that you imagine Meryl Streep doing something like that. There's no big speech in this movie for you to kind of get your claws into if you're a Meryl Streep. There's nothing demonstrative and Mm -hmm. out there. It's all very self-contained and wonderful. So that's uh, 20th Century Women. Thank you, Glenn. Brittany Luce, what is making you happy this week? Okay, I got two things. One, they're both super late passes. So I saw the first episode of Girls from a screener copy that a friend gave me in like maybe late 2010. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I saw the first episode. It didn't even have a title. And I was like, I don't want to watch this. (laughs) I never watched it again. And some of like Lena Dunham's like public antics are not my fave. So, um, you know, and I was concerned by lack of diversity. I was concerned by the casting of Donald Glover in the second season as sort of like a weird... Olive makeup, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So I sort of stayed away from the show, but um, now that the last season is coming up, my boyfriend suggested that I get into it. He's just like, "Yeah, it's pretty good," and I generally trust him. Um, So I I gave it another try, and though I hate almost every single character on the show, (laughs) almost every single character on the show, it has been satisfying to sort of watch the entire thing play out. I, I literally started a month ago. The show itself really is impressive. And and from me, um, that's that's like a lot considering yeah. like some of the show's challenges. I've found actually what it some of the work that it does to be really impressive. Um so that has been kind of making me I don't know if it's making me happy, but it's making me feel something for the, mm-hmm. for the, recently. Um and the second thing is last night I saw the band Blonde Redhead at La Poisson Rouge and it which is like a very small venue. They formed in like nineteen ninety three. Yeah, so all of them are like late forties, maybe early fifties now. I discovered Blonde Redhead when I was in high school. They had this album, Misery is a Butterfly, which is my favorite of theirs. And um, before they played a particular song last night that I hadn't heard in a very long time, my boyfriend was like, oh, mi favorita, mi favorita, to let me know that this was his favorite song. So it's called Falling Man. And it's like, to me, it's like the nugget of the album. It's quiet. It's beautiful. It's thoughtful. But there's like still a little bit of like rage underneath there. Thank you. 
it was such beautiful contemplative music and it was uh it was nice to be in that setting and i've been revisiting the album like basically ever since i saw the show so definitely 2004's misery is a butterfly by blonde redhead thank you very much Brittany loose i got two things too um I just returned from a a very, very wonderful short vacation in New York. Mostly this was one where I didn't see anybody. Uh, (laughs) I went to the Met all day and walked around by myself, where randomly, by the way, in the Great Hall, I ran into a friend of the show, Sean Ramaswam. Oh, in the nice. oh, Great Hall awesome. at the Met, Love which Sean. is very ridiculous to run into someone you know at the Met. <laughs> but anyway, I I just kind of lolled about the hotel, which is such a good thing to do if you like your hotel. And, you know, I would pop out for little things and then I came back and then it started snowing and I got snowed in one day and I just rolled around in the snow. Anyway, <laughs> there is a point to all of this. One of the nights that I, I was there just kind of all cuddled up in my hotel bed, I watched hours upon hours of Kids Baking Championship. <laughs> because that's what you watch when you're all curled up. Kids Baking Championship hosted by Duff Goldman and Valerie Bertinelli, one day at a time. One day uh, at a time. OG, uh, (laughs) one day at a time, Valerie Bertinelli. Kids Baking Championship is a great example. It is just nice kids making cakes and cupcakes and stuff. And if they cry, Valerie Bertinelli comes over and comforts them. It's the comfort foodiest comfort food that television will ever give you. I very much enjoyed it. And my other thing is I just want to mention, as I said, I was at the Met. If you're ever at the Met, my favorite painting at the Met is Fighting Cows by uh, Franz Marc. So if you're ever at the Met, go look up my favorite painting. I don't know anything about it. I just think it's the best looking painting. It's incredibly cool and I love it. So that is what is making me happy this week. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at NPRMonkeyC. You can follow Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can follow Glenn at G.H. Weldon. And you can follow Brittany at B.M. Luce. That's B-M-L-U-S-E. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy. And our producer emeritus and music director, Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif, K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides our in and out music, which you were tapping your foot to right now so thanks to all of you guys for being here thank you you thank you and thanks to all of you for listening and we will see you right back here next week sometimes listening to the news can get you down but wait wait don't tell me the npr news quiz is like ibuprofen for the aching mind Now, as an added bonus for the weekend of January 14th, Tom Hanks will be the show's guest host. Listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me with special guest Tom Hanks, you might have heard of him, on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts.